Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome former HHS Secretary and President Emeritus of the Morehouse School of Medicine, Dr. Lewis Sullivan, addressing inequity in minority health and in the medical professions, and the organization he founded which is seeking to advance representation of communities of color in all the medical professions. We need to work to eliminate these disparities because if we are able to do that, we will be a stronger country. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. When some black Americans had questions about the safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccine, our guest was out there with the facts and was encouraging everyone to get vaccinated. He's also leading the way on making the healthcare profession more diverse. None of this is a surprise to those who follow the booths of Dr. Lewis Sullivan. He truly is a legend. Dr. Sullivan served as the U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary in the George H.W. Bush administration after a distinguished career as the founding dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine. He's also the founder of the Sullivan Alliance to Transform the Health Professions and of the Association of Minority Health Professions Schools. Dr. Sullivan, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. It's so good to see you. Well, Mark, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to join you well, and Margaret. Great. Well, that is great. You know, COVID's taken a particular toll on of the black community, especially in the early stages. In fact, a recent California study shows that 37% of white people with COVID symptoms receive treatment compared to only 20% of black people who receive treatment. I guess the question is how in our country with all of its founding principles, are we still not able to get this right? Well, we really have a dichotomy in the history of our health system because when it comes to advances in science, on technology, we lead the world and have done so for the past uh, half century or longer. But when it comes to delivery of health services, right. we fall behind. And we've seen that by such things as life expectancy for black Americans and other minorities shorter than that of whites, infant mortality uh, for black infants is twice as high, death rate from cancer, heart disease, diabetes and other conditions are higher. So we really have this dichotomy and part of it, I say, is a delivery problem. Mm -hmm. We have strong science, but we have weak delivery. We need to find ways to see that all Americans, black, white, yellow, red, what have you, that all Americans have access to the marvelous science that has really to come out of our laboratories of our universities and research institutes. That's what we need to do. And I look upon it as an investment in a better, stronger America. I think too many people look upon investments or expenditures in health as really dollars that should be avoided. But that's a mistake mm -hmm. because I say that a healthy nation uh, really is a wealthy nation. Mm -hmm. If we can improve our health, we'll improve the wealth and the strength and the stability of our country. Well, Dr. Sullivan, you have a special focus on advancing health equity by fostering programs that advance the training of people of color in the health professions who deliver that care. You have a new book titled, We'll Fight It Out Here, A History of the Ongoing Struggle for Health Equity. Tell us when it comes to that training, what are the best strategies for winning in that struggle? Well, what we have is really an unfortunate history, we have an economy here. From the founding of the country, there were these high principles of equality and equal opportunity. 
but they are principles that we as a country have fallen short on. The positive thing is we are moving towards uh, making that more of a reality, but we have not yet reached that point. We have differences in wealth, differences in health status, difference in educational opportunities. So we need to work to eliminate these disparities because if we are able to do that, we will be a stronger country. We will have a more stable democracy. We'll have a stronger economy. So all of those things would be positive for our country as a whole, because those individuals who are impaired by illness or poor health, they are not as productive as they can be. So if we work to see that they are given the health services that they need, they will contribute more to our society. Uh, they will be stronger, better educated workers. Uh, they will help us in our international competition with other countries. So that's why I say these expenditures should be investments in a better United States. That's the story that I try to tell. Well, and it's such a well-told story, and I hope every American reads your book because it explains how 40 years ago, the Association of Minority Health Profession Schools brought to light healthcare inequities and precipitated virtually all minority health legislation since then. I'm wondering if you could take us through a little ride through that time, and also maybe where do the gaps currently remain? The Association of Minority Health Profession Schools came about in 1977, uh, I'm, a I'm a native Atlantan, graduate of Morehouse College and went to medical school at Boston University. And when I went to medical school, my goal was to become a physician to return to Georgia to provide health services to Georgians, particularly African-Americans, because in the southwestern part of my state where we lived, there was one black physician. Mm. He was someone I admired because he had a capability that others didn't have. He had the ability to take care of people who became ill or injured or needed uh, other health services. He was highly respected and he was revered in the community. That was my role model. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be, be like him. Well, when I got to Boston University, I learned a lot about medicine that I had not known about. So it ended up, I didn't become a primary care physician. I ended up being a hematologist graduated in 1958. And uh, to make a long story short, by the early 70s, I'd become professor of medicine at Boston University, my medical school, Alamada. And I was uh, doing research in nutritional anemias. I always loved science. I found it very rewarding to discover things and to really work to improve people's health with blood diseases. But Morehouse College decided they wanted to start a medical school. So as an alumnus of the college, I was among the alumni contacted by the college, and I ended up thinking, well, I came here in 1954, the year of Brown versus Board of Education, yeah. where I entered medical school. I came to Boston University with the idea of going back to Georgia and taking care of people. And I ended up doing things which I thought were important and exciting. So when that opportunity came, I indeed accepted, went back and formed the Morehouse School of Medicine in 1975. That was the third predominantly black medical school then to exist in the United States. There had been seven at the time of the Flexner Report in 1910 that resulted in tremendous changes in medical education. Of those seven school black schools that existed in 1910, only two survived. Howard in Washington that opened in 1868, 
and Meharry in Nashville, Tennessee, that opened in 1886. So when Morehouse opened with our first class in 1978, we were the first in the 20th century. We formed uh, uh, associations not only with Meharry, but also with the veterinary school at Tuskegee University in Alabama and Xavier College of Pharmacy. So the association was formed so that we could work together uh, to supplement each other's activities and to really work to have programs at the federal and state levels that would support what we were trying to do. Because like other black institutions of higher education, we were underfunded. So that's why the association was formed. But the association grew so that it now has 12 uh, health professions programs that are members. Mm-hmm. We were able to speak with members of Congress or state legislatures and get programs enacted uh, that really supported what we were trying to do. So we were expressing health status for African-Americans and poor whites also was not as good as that of more affluent individuals or majority populations. And of course, we uh, made the uh, argument that if we are able to have a healthier population, you'll be a more productive population. So we were fortunate in that this message was listened to by members of Congress, and a number of programs were developed. And I would say that um, because of that uh, fact that we brought the health inequities to the attention of people in the Congress and in state legislatures, as well as in the private sector, uh, a number of programs were enacted through the association. So that is what the book, We'll Fight It Out Here, is all about. Well, it's so fascinating. But Dr. Sullivan, as somebody who's uh, been involved in healthcare for almost five decades, uh, I find it staggering that for all the advances that have been made today, only about 5% of the nation's doctors identify as Black. And I wonder, um, with all the work that's going on, is are we projecting over the next 10 years or 20 years that we'll see a significant shift in that? And, and what can each of us do uh, to try and make the profession more diverse? Well, you're certainly correct that the representation of African-Americans among the nation's physicians is far less than what it should be at 5%. But in 1950, a year that I entered college, it was only 2% of the nation's physicians were African-American. During the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, with a lot of activities underway, stimulated by the civil rights movement, the great society programs of Lyndon Johnson with the enactment of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, the National Health Service Corps programs and others, we did increase uh, the number of Black physicians uh, to 5%. Blacks, as you know, today are 13% of the U.S. population. Right. So uh, we really fall far short. The reasons for that really are multiple. Uh, they are financial. Getting a health professions education is, is expensive. Many people from low-income families cannot afford it. Secondly, Getting into a health professions program is competitive. You have to be well-trained, mm-hmm. knowledgeable, really not only in the sciences, but in a general education so that you're able to communicate with people effectively and understand complex situations and be able to solve problems when you're on the fly. So we have to have well-educated young people. Unfortunately, inner city schools where most African-Americans receive their K through 12 education, those schools so often uh, underfunded, so that the strength of the education they receive 
is not as high. So the combination of lack of resources to go to college and on to graduate school or professional school. So it's really a combination of lack of adequate preparation, lack of uh, financial resources, and also lack of role models. Mm-hmm. I was lucky, as I mentioned, in having a role model in Dr. Griffin, but a lot of uh, black youngsters never see a black health professional. So they don't have that view that they can and should work to become a health professional. Then there's bias in the system. We're working uh, to diminish and eventually eliminate bias. Today, in spite of the fact that we have a lot of problems, we are much better than we were 50 years ago. Progress will take time. Developing a health professional starts with that youngster in the community, the educational uh, opportunities that person has, the vision that they have, the financial resources, uh, and the guidance that, that they have. So it really does take decades. So so this is uh, an issue for the long term. We need to rev up our capabilities here. They are better. When I went to medical school in 1954, one third of the medical schools in the country were in the South. I could not go to a medical school in the South because of the legally enforced segregation. Well, that's different now. So some of the schools that are doing well on diversity are in the South, but schools around the country, all of them working together, need to do much better. So that's what we hope to see. You know, in your book, you cover the waterfront of issues, but one of the areas that you highlight is the rise of Newt Gingrich, a fellow Georgian in the House of Representatives, really is a turning point in the politics in the United States. What if you can describe for our uh, listeners, uh, his influence on health policy, and, and how do you think it continues to this day? Well, Newt Gingrich was really quite influential. He was, of course, professor of history at West Georgia College before he ran for Congress, uh, and he seemed to uh, have a strong interest in science. And he, when he ran for Congress and was elected, he visited me at Morehouse School of Medicine. Hmm. Uh, was supportive of what we were trying to do. Then, uh, and that was uh, in the uh, late 70s. Then in 89, when I became secretary, he visited me in in Washington. So he was someone who was an accomplished academic, but I really was very surprised uh, at the very conservative uh, political posture he took when he became Speaker of the House. It was quite um, strident uh, in his views, so that uh, he's someone uh, that, that I think has a promise that was not fulfilled to improving the health of our, of our country. He started a revolution that really we still see today. The degree of divisiveness between our two political parties, I think, has really gone beyond the brink. We now have a Congress that is not as functional, not as productive, as it can be. We need to find ways uh, for our elected officials to know they work for us, the people. Public service is a great honor and an opportunity to improve your community. So I would hope that we are able to work with our colleagues uh, who've been put in the elected office to really come together to solve problems rather than to really have political battles that really do nothing but uh, divide our our country. Dr. Sullivan, can I just follow up on that for for one second? Because where it's not only we're divisive, but healthcare is under attack. 
You saw it in uh, the sort of partisan divide that occurred on the vaccine itself. But health professionals now are really being challenged for their credibility. And that's the first time we've seen that happen. But how do we bring this divisiveness and this uh, undermining of the role model that you grew up with, a health professional who you listen to and you learn from and you spend a lifetime emulating? It seems that we're, we're at a crossroads in America. Well, we are. And I say there are a number of things that really should be done. First of all, we need to have all of our citizens vote, become active at the polls, and, and make your elected representatives uh, address the issues that, that, we, that we have. Uh, so so that, that's the first thing. Our health system uh, for delivery purposes is underfunded. One of the things, for example, is we need to strengthen our system of public health. Because in the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, we saw the fact that our uh, colleagues at CDC were really uh, under stress and frequently uh, had to work in an environment where there was misinformation coming from uh, our senior elected officials coming from the White House uh, uh, here. You remember the um, when the President uh, Trump said, oh, this virus will be gone in two or three weeks and you won't know it. Well, uh, uh, public health officials really uh, were very uh, disturbed by that and tried to correct uh, the, that without uh, having a confrontation with the president. But we found that for whatever reason, uh, these kinds of statements, which were incorrect or misinformation, uh, proceeded. And so as a result of that, uh, among other things, we've seen this politicization of, uh, of science and health. Uh, where, uh, where whether you wore a mask or not during the height of, of the pandemic became a political statement. Mm -hmm. Whether you uh, tried to uh, have social distancing between people uh, at restaurants and in public gatherings, that became another uh, issue. So that as a scientist, you try to be objective and, and really follow what the data tells you, because science really should be in the service of people. It should not be used for political purposes, but that was not the case. So, so that uh, confusion in the public ha has existed. And uh, people, for example, who didn't understand the scientific process were suspicious of this virus, uh, of this vaccine, because it had been developed within 12 months of discovering this virus. And I was in medical school when the Salk vaccine and the Satan vaccines were developed for polio. It took years uh, for that. But because of our scientific techno technology that has been developed, we're able to uh, develop the uh, vaccine for this new virus and develop an excellent vaccine. Mm -hmm. But people really were confused by that. So we need to support our public health system see that our state public health offices and agencies are funded, see that uh, CDC uh, and the other components of the public health system get the support that they, that they get. And also the science literacy of the population needs to be improved because part of the problem was the suspicion in our society 
that this vaccine somehow was not good or was uh, uh, something else. Th that really is because of a number of factors, but including the fact that people don't understand how vaccines work uh, or the science behind them. So we need to improve the scientific literacy in our population. We need to support our public health service. We need to have more diversity among our, our health professionals. We need to see that everyone has access to care through having health insurance or, or a payment mechanism. All of those things are necessary. But again, I emphasize if we do that, the returns on our society will far exceed that investment mm -hmm. by having a healthier po population and a more productive population. Dr. Sullivan, from where you sit, I think you're a uh, you're a senior statesman for sure. You have a a great pulpit through your writing, uh, through the book that you've just done, interviews like this. But I'm I'm curious, and I, I'd like to ask you uh, when we see the some of the individual platforms that some of the, in particular, the Republican Party leaders are taking. And I'm thinking uh, specifically right now about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, came out against a recent diversity job fair in a state and is blocking advanced placement courses in high schools about African-American studies. Are you reaching out to any of these individuals uh, on a one-to-one -one basis to try and have conversations, understand where they're coming from, and maybe try and have a one-to-one -one dialogue with some of these very uh, influential opinion uh, shapers in the country? That's an excellent idea. We have not done that thus far, but that really is an excellent suggestion that we will really see what we can do, because I would like to believe that everyone who aspires to be a public servant wants to do the right thing for our people. Uh, so there can be a lot of confusion. And in the hurly-burly of the political world, people may not have the, the right in information. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see our health system uh, and science in general really respected for its fidelity its adherence to truth, to serve pe the needs of, of people and not banded about for mm -hmm. political purposes. Uh, and uh, I would say that uh, fortunately, when I was secretary from 89 to 93, uh, I had a lot of members of Congress, Democrat and Republican, who were very supportive of the health programs that, that we had and worked together uh, in the Congress to implement uh, new programs. We have a number of programs that came into being during uh, my, my time. Yeah. Uh, Healthy People 2000, uh, we launched in September of 1990, and the Healthy People Movement to improve health literacy and the health behavior of our population is, is still there. Uh, support for research at NIH uh, has grown uh, over the years with both parties uh, supporting it. We want to really uh, try and return to uh, a fact-based uh, uh, program that serves the people. And so reaching out to our leaders, I think, is a great idea, and we will really work to see if we can help change the environment. Well, that's great. Let me get in one last question, uh, Dr. Sullivan, and I also should note Secretary Sullivan, but I, I want to talk to you about your own hometown, Atlanta and the CDC, where it, uh, it is housed. You talked about it a little earlier, and I would say as part of that conversation you were having about how we have to fund our public health systems, I think the CDC took a lot of hits during the pandemic. Do you see if there's a way out for them? Uh, what, what's the best way to navigate a very distrusting public 
to try to bring back the sort of functionality that we all saw the CDC have uh, years ago. What do you have to say about that? Well, you're quite correct. The lack of trust or the loss of trust uh, in our health system is really part of a larger phenomenon that we are experiencing as a society or as a country, because trust in our other institutions in our society has also diminished. Trust in our judicial system, in our educational system, uh, religious divisions, all of those have uh, really increased. Uh, the um, tremendous attention around immigration uh, has been unfortunate because the data show that immigrants coming to America really have produced a lot of the jobs uh, that uh, we have. The, the farmers need to have immigrants uh, to really help with the work on the farm, the planting and the harvesting, et, et, et cetera. Uh, the, the workers in our restaurants and our hotels, the immigrants uh, contribute to, uh, to that. And so we are all immigrants who have come to the country. So to me, it is ironic and unfortunate seeing people really trying to resist immigration when their, their parents or their grandparents or great-grandparents were immigrants uh, who came and, and provided a, a platform for, for them. We are a country of immigrants, and our democracy has accepted and benefited from that. We need to get back to that, to that, uh, to that spirit. Now, with the uh, strategies to improve trust in our health system, they are multiple. They are as follows. First of all, all of us in the health system need to understand that we have a role to play in addition to our professional uh, responsibilities of really working with our communities to explain what we are doing and why it's important and how it works, et cetera. But we need partners. Uh, there are some institutions in our society that have a greater level of trust. Uh, I know in the black community, the black church is mm -hmm. a very important institution. So a number of health programs are really provided uh, by churches, whether they are vaccination programs or well baby clinics mm -hmm. or nutrition programs uh, or other things. So by working in partnership with uh, those uh, organizations uh, will help. But we need to hold our public officials accountable that they are there to serve the people. Uh, they are there to make our country better and they need to find ways to work together and I was fortunate in working for George H.W. Bush because he was an individual who saw public service as an honor. Yeah. He was a World War II pilot in the Navy, as you know, uh, was a hero there. Uh, he worked uh, for uh, as the representative to China uh, to help open up China uh, back in the 60s. Uh, he worked for the CIA and he was a congressman from Texas. Uh, and then vice president and, and president. So the spirit of public service, serving the people, has to be the mantra for those who serve in elected office. Because if they do that, and we as citizens be sure that we elect people with that kind of orientation, those are the things that will help. So that's what I urge everyone to do. It's everyone's responsibility. It'll take time and effort, but it'd be worth the, uh, worth the effort. Well, Dr. Sullivan, speaking of heroes and public servants, it's a true honor to speak with you who exemplify that. Your work and dedication has inspired all of us. Thank you for being with us, and thank you to our audience for being here as well. 
You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our email updates at chcradio.com. Dr. Sullivan, thank you again so much for being with us. Well, let me end by thanking you and your colleagues at the Community Health Center for all of the citizens that you serve and what you do to improve the communities where you operate. We need to have more community health centers around the country to serve our people, to increase the health, the economic viability of our country, the educational strengths, and the strength of our democracy. So thank you for what you do. Amen. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCRadio.com.